Glad that you guys are here. Uh, it's always fun to be here uh, with all of you, and I always enjoy. Um, I didn't grow up in a church that we talked corporately a lot, and so it's still really fun for me uh, when we confess together and when we pray together and when we sing together. Um, it's just a beautiful time, and I'm glad that you're here and a part of it. Um, we're continuing our series through the gospel according to Luke this morning, and we've been uh, looking at Luke for a few weeks now, and we're kind of uh, in the center of a portion of the narrative where Luke is going to continue to hammer the same point at us over and over and over. So if it feels like I took my sermon last week and, and extended it by about another half, I didn't. I really did rewrite everything, but, uh, but it seems that Luke has a point for us. And in a very no-nonsense way, we're going to see that Luke, along with the other evangelists that wrote down uh, the Gospels as they saw it, they are not interested in us perusing their material as some sort of history or philosophy of religion. Luke is screaming at us in this story to make a decision. And we're going to see just what decision he wants us to make. But let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading. It's from Luke chapter 7. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Jesus says, we just sang, it is your righteousness alone that can cover us. And once again, many of us have entered this place clothing ourselves in rags that we think will impress you. We're so ashamed of our nakedness that we have decided to clothe ourselves, and yet what we need is you. There's nothing that we can do to earn your grace. But I ask that you would speak this morning to our hearts. Speak to us of your love. May we all hear your voice as our shepherd calling us home, calling us back to you. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, this is a rather uh, large passage that seems to have a lot going on, but I'd like us to look at it this morning by looking at the three questions that are asked in this passage. And those three questions are, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? What did you go out to the desert to see? And to what shall I compare this generation? And as we're going to see, these three questions have to do with the core of the identity of all the characters in this story. Who is Jesus? Who is John? And who is everybody else? And as we, as we start to go through this story, I want to start with just a bit of a warning. We're not good at seeing who we really are. We're really actually pretty terrible at it. When NBC uh, had this hit sitcom called The Office, I don't know if any of you have watched it, but when it really started creating a buzz a few seasons in, it was one of these shows that people felt was really relatable because it was about kind of these out-of-the-way people who were really average and they were working at this out-of-the-way company that was really average. And it was just sort of funny about their lives, doing things that we can all relate to working in an office. Now, if you didn't watch it, but if you maybe had friends that did or you worked in an office where people talked about it, you might have picked up on something that's very interesting. Everybody that watched this show identified with one of two characters, Pam or Jim. Everybody. So Pam and Jim were the cool people. They were the good-looking, good-natured goof-offs who get together and their lives are just generally pretty great. Everybody worked with an odd sort of weirdo like Dwight or an attention-seeking boss who was very strange like Michael Scott or even a dim-witted accountant like Kevin. But nobody was any of those people. No, no, no. We were all, we were all Jim or Pam. We, we were the cool kids. And everybody else were the other people. So before we dig in to the different characters in this story, I want us to just be very aware. We will all identify with somebody. But we have to ask ourselves, who should we identify with? Who is Luke asking us to identify with? Let's begin with the first question that John sends his disciples to ask Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another as with most questions, there is a subtext to this question that requires our attention. What does John mean, are you the one who is to come? Well, if we had, uh, again, more time this morning and we could dig back into all of the Old Testament passages that John had grown up on, we would see that, that John, as one of the prophets of Israel, one of the Old Testament-style prophets, he is reaching back into the Hebrew Scriptures with a descriptor of the Messiah. The Messiah was called the one who would come. But beyond just understanding that John is asking if Jesus is the Messiah, we have to understand what Luke has been doing in his gospel all along. And when we, when we see Luke as a whole, we'll understand that this question should be very, very shocking to us. Because Luke has introduced us to John before. 
In fact, Luke begins his gospel by telling us about the birth of John. And it was a very, very miraculous birth. And his parents were told that he was going to be very important in God's purposes. And there's a story that Luke tells us that as John is in his mother's womb and Jesus is in his mother's womb and their mothers meet, that John leaps in his mother's womb. He is filled with the Spirit before he is even born. And he recognizes who Jesus is. When we meet John again, he is an adult going about his public ministry declaring that God is about to do some major, major things in Israel. And if we were to go back and study the preaching of John, we would realize that he was anticipating the judgment of God to finally come. He was expecting the righteous remnant of God's people to finally be vindicated, to be set free from the tyranny of her oppressors. And it seems that, Jesus was, or that John was very sure that Jesus was the one who was going to bring this about. If anyone should know who Jesus is, it's John. If anyone shouldn't be asking this question, it's John. But now, John is languishing in prison. Luke has left John by the wayside in his narrative several chapters ago, and he just left him in prison. That's all we know. So he asks his followers to go see what Jesus is up to. What is he doing? How is the mission going? Because if, after all, Jesus is the Messiah, then he's going to be following the servant songs of Isaiah, one of which we read this morning in our Old Testament reading. He's going to be setting captives free. And oh, by the way, I'm a captive. I'm in prison. Where is Jesus? He's going to come. He's going to set things right, and he will free me. But instead, his disciples come back to him in prison, and they tell him what Jesus is doing, and he hears that Jesus is preaching very odd things. He's hanging out with all sorts of horrible people, And John, no doubt, heard the story that we looked at last week, that Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion, a member of the occupying army. I mean, it's possible, not likely, but it's possible that this guy could have been one of the ones that was guarding John. And Jesus is healing this guy rather than freeing the very one who had declared that God was about to do something huge in Israel. You see, John had a very clear vision of what the eschaton would be, the the last days, the end times. It was going to be a day of vengeance when all of God's enemies would finally be punished and silenced and all of God's people would finally be justified and vindicated and freed. And none of that is happening. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks, are you really the Messiah? Because if you are, then I've got to start reorienting my ideas about who the Messiah is and what he does. But if you're not, I put my hopes on the wrong guy and I need to keep looking. I think many of us can relate to the questions that John is asking. For a lot of us here this morning, it's it's not so much that we don't believe that Jesus does miraculous things. It's not so much that we don't believe that he existed and was very impactful in human history. It's just that we're not really sure if he is the one when we look around at the evil in our world, we begin to falter. It doesn't take long for us to feel the sort of tension that John felt. Even though maybe many of us here will never actually be imprisoned, we can look out on a world of violence. I don't think that hardly any of us were even alive when World War I was declared the war to end all wars, and yet even just our nation, just, just one country, has barely been able to go a decade since then 
without getting involved in some sort of military conflict. Again, just looking at our own country, we can see that decades and millions of dollars have been spent to fight the war on drugs, and yet we're realizing now we barely understand addicts. We barely have a handle on, on the violent cartels that are trafficking drugs, and we barely started to realize that evil in our world is like a shape-shifting virus. As soon as we think we can stomp it down in one area, it pops up in another. And so now that we've spent all this money on busting drug dealers, we realize that they've moved on to human trafficking. And we're just now starting to see it as a problem. And all the violence and death and tragedy in our world can leave us doubting. But we're going to doubt in different ways. Some of us will doubt and we'll end up falling away. We'll end up just assuming that Jesus was not the one, that things are not being set right, and we're just all here by chance. But for others of us, it will cause us to become like some of Jesus' disciples will behave in just a few short chapters after this story. They will enter into a town that Jesus had told them to go to, and they're expecting that the people will welcome them. And when they don't, they tell Jesus, can we call down fire on these people? We're asking, are you really the one, Jesus? Because if you are, bring the pain, bring the retribution, bring the judgment, and let those people have it. How does Jesus respond to these disciples of John who are asking this very well-intentioned, very genuine question? Well, first, he doesn't. He just continues going about his business. He goes about healing people and cleansing people and gracing the blind with sight. And then he says, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. And then he begins to string together things from the servant songs of Isaiah, things that the Messiah would do. The blind are given sight, the lame walk, the diseased are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, we don't have time to to get into talking about how it is that Jesus is going about preaching the gospel at this point in his ministry, and yet what Luke wants us to see is that The gospel is being preached to the poor. And what Luke is doing for us in this section is he's tying us into the narratives on either side, and he's showing us that by what he means by poor is poor in every sense of the word. So last week, we just looked at the centurion who was very wealthy, wealthy enough to build a synagogue in the town in which he lived. And yet this centurion knows that he is helpless in the face of Jesus. And he tells Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come to me, but say the word and my servant will be healed. The very next story right after that is a story of a helpless woman whose son has just died. She will be left destitute if someone doesn't intervene, and Jesus intervenes. This woman that has no claim on him, he comes to her and he gives her back the life of her son. The story that's immediately following the one we're looking at here, the one we'll look at next week, is a story of a destitute prostitute who has absolutely no business being near the only person who can help her. The good news is that God is in the process of helping helpless people. God is giving out the riches of his grace to the poorest of the poor, and it's the poor in every sense of that word. But then, almost as John's men turn to go, Jesus calls after them, tell John, blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. And the word that's used here, it's like a word picture of tripping or stumbling or falling, but it's the word from which we get our word, scandalize. Jesus says, tell John, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. 
We're going to work out what that means in a moment. But for now, let's look at the second question. Jesus turns and asks the crowd, what did you go out into the desert to see? Were you going to study the ecosystem? Did you go to see reeds blowing about in the wind? Perhaps you heard that the uh, new winter line from J. Crew was being modeled out there and you wanted to go take a look at it. No, Jesus answers his own question. You went out to see a prophet, a man of conviction, a man with a very strong backbone, not a reed who would get blown about in the wind. But he tells the people, John is more than a prophesier. He is also the prophesied. He has been prophesied about. John is the forerunner, the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And before anyone can get the wrong idea about doubting John, Jesus tells the crowd that John is the greatest person ever born. Except that he's not. And you maybe start to realize why the crowds call Jesus a drunk, because this doesn't really make sense. John's the greatest person ever born, except that the people that are the least in the kingdom are even greater than him. What's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus isn't talking about influence or stature or some sort of ontological greatness that, you know, that he's like measuring people on this hierarchy. Rather, what he's trying to alert his listeners to and what Luke is trying to alert his readers to is that the old age, the age of Israel and the prophets is coming to a close and God is about to begin a new age with his people. And John was the bridge from the old age to the new. And Jesus is saying, John is the greatest man to ever live. He is one of the greatest prophets that Israel has ever had. And yet, this new age, this new kingdom, this new movement of God is going to be so much better that it's like the least person in this new movement will be better than John. They will have it better than John. They will understand grace even better than John. And what Luke is going to do more fully in his sequel, in the book of Acts, is he's going to show that the eschaton, the end times, the last days, the end of the old age is not what was expected. Rather than the end of the world, it was the beginning of the church, the beginning of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into all cultures, all countries, all nations, all peoples that will one day culminate in the remaking of all things. Now, it's at this point that Luke interrupts his own story. So if you've still got your bulletin there, you can see our translators actually put a, a parenthesis here. And this parenthetical is Luke sort of interrupting what Jesus is saying to the crowds, and he's trying to get us to understand the point. He's trying to make it explicitly clear what he's talking about. Now, our NIV translators have tried their best to smooth out the language, but this is a really rough, weird way of saying what Luke's saying. So translated roughly, he's saying, all the people and the tax gatherers, having heard, declared God righteous. They justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers put away from themselves the purposes of God, having not been baptized by him. And so there's a lot of weird wording in this passage that we could get tripped up on, but I think what I, what I want us to focus in on is the question that most uh, theologically-minded people would have is how in the world are people justifying God? Who declares God righteous? That doesn't even make sense in our categories. So what does that mean? And why is Luke being so fuzzy when he's trying to get us to see the point? He's trying to clear things up for us. Well, if we take what he's saying in this parenthetical and we look at it within the rest of the narrative, I think we'll see that Jesus has just declared John to be his forerunner. And Luke is setting us up to understand that those people that accepted the message of John would accept Jesus. 
And the people that refused and rejected the message of John would reject Jesus. All the crowds that came out to hear John were divided into two camps. There were those that heard and received the baptism of repentance, and there were those that heard and hardened their hearts. And what Luke is doing is he's extrapolating for us what he described in our narrative from last week. Some people know they are unworthy of God's grace, and other people think they deserve it as a right. The crowds understood John's preaching, and they all understood that baptism is disrobing. It's humiliating. It's a letting go of every claim we have on life on our own terms. And some of them realized they had no claim on life anyway, and they entered into this baptism of repentance. Others of them refused to hear of their need, and they hardened their hearts, and they kept John at arm's length. And Luke is telling us in this parenthetical that tax collectors and people like them saw their need so much more readily than religious people. I want to look now at the third question in this passage, and then we're going to tie together some of the, the strands that Luke is weaving together for us so that we'll try and figure out what is he asking us to do? How is he asking us to think of ourselves? So Jesus finishes this dialogue with the people with a short parable. He says, To what can I compare the people of this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace yelling at one another. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not cry. They're saying, we played weddings and funerals and you didn't like either of them. And Jesus is saying, when John came, you looked at his table manners and you were deeply, deeply offended. Table manners in this culture meant everything to people. And so here comes John and he doesn't eat with anyone. And so even the most holy religious insiders, John is saying, "Mm, sorry, you need to have a baptism of repentance. And they say, ah, this guy's crazy. He must have a, have a demon. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He won't associate with anyone. He's all holier than thou. And Jesus says, then I come along. And you get all upset because I associate with the wrong people. And you think I'm a drunk because I party with people that have no business being in the kingdom of God. Theologians have picked up on the tone of Jesus that is somewhat exasperated in this section of our story. And they call this the parable of the brats. Jesus is telling these people, you guys are like annoying brats who whine and complain whenever we don't play by your rules. And what you're not getting is that John was on mission for God. And he really didn't care what you think about him because he had been given a message from God that burned so deeply in his soul that he could not be swayed by the opinions of anyone, religious insider or not. And Jesus says, I am on mission for God, and you will not sway me by your opinions. And because the mission of God doesn't look like what you think it should look like, you complain. You start throwing a tantrum like little brats in the street. So what is Luke trying to get us to understand with this episode? As I said in the beginning, we all identify with a certain set of characters in stories that we read. But we often don't know ourselves well enough or we're not willing to be honest with ourselves enough about which characters we really should align with, which ones we actually are emulating. So who are we? I think many of us here are are religious people. We're here because we're Christians. We're here because we've been in the church for a while, because Jesus has done something in our lives. Some of us are here that are still questioning. We're still on the outside, still wondering who Jesus really is. 
I think if we really understand what religious people are like, we're going to see something very interesting. There are those of us that are traditionalists, and we're people that are deeply, deeply saddened by the apostasy of our culture. We look around at our peers and we're dismayed at how quickly people in our own culture have just thrown off the richness of their heritage. How many have seemed to capitulate to polytheistic, pluralistic, relativistic culture that we're all living in? And, and those of us that are traditionalists, we're calling people back. We want people to come back to God, to the way that life is supposed to be, the way that God intended life to be, a life of worship and purity, a life of moral certainty and responsibility in the midst of a culture that shifts and sways with the pulse of any new idea. And it's not like we're interested in moralism for moralism's sake. We have a deep, deep faith that at some point, God is going to visit this earth again. And we want to usher him in. We want to bring in his kingdom. We want people to live well. But there are others of us that are not traditionalists in any real sense of the word. We subscribe more to the religion of Portland. And the religion of Portland has just as many rights and wrongs as any traditional religion out there. It's right to shop locally and eat organically. It's wrong to shop at Walmart or condemn people who live differently than us. And it's, it's not that we're being disingenuous, those of us that have the religion of Portland. It's not that we don't want certainty and truth. It's that we're wanting to be generous to people with differing viewpoints. We want to be open to new ideas. And on both sides, we're all saying we're not perfect. We never claimed to be perfect, but we are genuinely concerned about a world that seems to have gone sideways, and we want it to be set right. The people that I have just described for you are Pharisees. You see, we have developed a caricature of Pharisees in our own minds that gets us off the hook as far as we're concerned. When we think about Pharisees, we think about fuddy-duddy fundamentalists who think that having a beer will send you to hell or dressing like a Mormon missionary means that you're a Christian. And the, the, the parable of the bratty children is sort of like us on the highway. People that are going too slow are idiots. What are they doing? Get out of the way. People that are going too fast are idiots. They're dangerous. What are they doing? Get out of the way. And we tend to think of Pharisees as the people that are over in the right-hand lane going way too slow, holding all of us up, and they're crazy. And there may have been some Pharisees that far out on the spectrum of first-century Judaism, but by and large, if we could generalize Pharisees in Jesus' day and we could generalize people in our own culture, we will realize that Pharisees were very, very much like us. In fact, the Pharisees are simply a, a clearer, purer picture of the way we all live our lives. I don't think it would be controversial for me to suggest that of all the people that Jesus encounters, he is most condemnatory, most harsh with Pharisees and religious insiders. The gospel accounts give us a pretty clear picture of that, and this passage is no different. The Pharisees, the religious insiders, were the ones that were most deeply, deeply offended by the message of John and Jesus. But what we have to realize is that we're all religious in one way or another. And many of you are probably thinking, well, 
What are you saying, Steve? We should just pitch headlong into moral ambiguity? How can you say that we've been wrong for pointing out immorality in our culture? Why does it feel like you're reprimanding us for being good people, good Christians, good citizens? And the traditionalists in the room are saying, Steve, there, there has to be a difference. There has to be. Everyone in my office goes to the strip club after work, and I go home to my wife and my crying baby. All of my friends at school are having sex with their boyfriends, and I'm single because I won't sleep around. I lost my house because a cutthroat banker got greedy, and now he lives in a mansion, and I live in a tiny apartment. I lost my job because I refused to come in on Sundays because I wanted to be in worship with God's people, and now I can't provide for my family. I have PTSD because I decided to serve my country and fight for freedom and fight against terrorism. Those of us that are more in line with the religion of Portland, we're saying we're just good Portlanders. You can't condemn us for recycling, for driving fuel-efficient cars or biking. We're generous to people we disagree with, and you cannot tell me that there is no difference between me and a fundamentalist who won't hear the difference between anything he says and anyone else. He doesn't want to listen to anyone. You cannot tell me that there is no difference. Why should I repent? I went out and did what was right when it wasn't easy. So don't tell me that Jesus is for strip club owners and drug dealers and terrorists and abortion doctors in the same way that he is for me. And don't tell me that he loves bigots and conservative naysayers and the oppressive wealthy upper class like he loves me. I can't be called to repent like those people are being called to repent. And it is so easy, it is so easy for us to slip into judgment Self-justification mode, and we don't even realize it. And this passage cuts like a knife if we'll let it. It's been said, life is a web of trials and temptations. But the only one, only one of them can ever be fatal. The temptation to think that it is by further, better, and more aggressive living that we can have life. The truth is you can't live your way to life. You can only die your way there, lose your way there. For Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable, or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life for those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of a life he cannot. Friends, for all of us, there there is a collection of people that are other. There's a group of people that are on the outside, that are unlovable, that don't deserve to come in to the table. We all have these groups of people in our own minds. And when we see Jesus embracing them, we are incensed. And when we see his arms around people that we hate, we close up our arms and we hold on to all the things that we think make us good and we walk away. What a scandal. What a scandal that a holy God would love you and the people that you hate in the exact same way. What a scandal it is that he would love you both enough to swallow up your death in his own. Blessed is anyone who is not scandalized by a God of drunks and whores and religious pharisaical failures. Let's pray.
Jesus, many of your words are difficult for us to hear because we so often spend so much of our energy trying to improve ourselves. And it's honestly hard to hear that you love us in spite of our sin and in spite of our attempts at being good, in spite of our attempts at covering ourselves up. I ask that as we come to your table, that you would feed us again, that we would hear of your grace and that we would know that you love us deeply. We ask in your name. Amen.